I'm Andrew Sherman. I'm a Texas transplant who has always been in pursuit of art as a career. I've played in bands, pursued an acting career in Hollywood, but I found it behind the lens of a camera here in Dallas, Texas. I was born in New York, I've lived in Chicago, Los Angeles, Austin, but I love Dallas. There's a magical artistic scene in Dallas that mostly goes unnoticed to the outside world. This podcast is focused on what makes it so special and the people who make it thrive artistically. If you don't live here, and even if you do, you might not have heard of them. This is the Dallas Famous Podcast. So who you gonna be? Who you gonna be when you out? Who you gonna be? Who you gonna be when you out? For us, yeah. This week on the Dallas Famous Podcast is Max Hartman. Max is a musician, actor, and voiceover artist born and raised right here in Dallas. We chat about the early days of Kitchen Dog Theater where he was nominated and won awards for his acting work. We also chat about his band Murr and his former bandmate Chad Murray. We also touch on his alter ego lounge singer persona, Max Montaigne. I hope you enjoy my chat with Max Hartman. Okay, we are here today with Mr. Max Hartman. Max, you are Hello. actor, voiceover artist, singer, mm-hmm. what am I missing? Anything else? Yeah, I guess musician, uh, songwriter mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. And fool. Ha. Okay. <laughs> cool. Are you, um, are you uh, Texan, Dallas? Yeah, born and raised. Born at Baylor Hospital right around here. Oh, yeah. We're very close. Walking I can distance. feel my, the grounds we are on. It's <laughs> na- my native to my, my family. Nice. Nice. Okay. So <clears throat> you've got all this artistic stuff. Like mm-hmm. early on, like, what, like as a kid, like what's the first thing that you kind of like, like struck you as something to do? My dad was a had a drum set so he was a drummer kind of by hobby i guess Uh, by this point by the time i was around the drums were just kind of he had them set up and he had his big hi-fi stereo system so he was obsessed with music um listening all the time so every time i'd i'd watch him play the drums he'd play along to stuff and that's the first thing that got me hooked i think my sister was practicing piano all the time so i knew i didn't want to do that Mm -hmm. (laughs) it sounded like torture you know um but the drums seemed cool. So I got started there and then that led to guitar because it was a lot easier to get around with a guitar and can't just pull out the drum set at a party in front of girls. And, right. But then I had to, then I was totally the guy with the guitar at the party guy, <laughs> you know, shamelessly, if but I uh, met a lot of girls that way. But, yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> no, when I, when I was, when I was in fifth grade, I had a friend who could play everything on the piano and we would compete like all the time with the girls and then you know fifth grade just getting started mm-hmm. with that stuff and then he'd sit out the piano and i was like oh like i have no chance and that's like why I, that's probably why i got into music yeah right <laughs> kind of something to to at least be occupied with during the awkwardness of a party i always felt like it was more fun to be playing in a band during new year's eve than to just be at something uh-huh. you know with all those expectations at least i had something to do you know sure um my dad was also, and I think about it, I guess he was really the lynch. He was also a photographer. I see a lot of photography around here. Uh-huh. You obviously are quite good. We had a dark room in our house growing up. So, oh, cool. Yeah, so he was pretty damn serious about it. His friends that taught him went on to shoot for National Geographic and Time Life and all this stuff. So it was, oh, yeah. <laughs> and the guy who taught him drums was Bill Reichenbach, who is the percussionist that plays on that Stan Getz, Charlie Bird, uh, Jazz Samba album. Oh uh, yeah, with the, all the instrumental versions of Desafinado and Girl from Ipanema and all that stuff. Was, he was a percussionist. Was he doing like a real job too, or like it was mostly? On, I, I guess he was. He was 
a pro percussionist that okay. also had to teach lessons on the side, you know, Got back it. in the okay. 1960s. It was in Washington, D.C., I guess. My dad was um, working. Um, so I guess that's where it, it all started from, is, is, was dad's music and photography. Um, mm-hmm. So you're definitely, you started with music. Yeah. And then my sisters were both, and there's a church we grew up at, Lake Highlands Methodist in Dallas, Lake Highlands, obviously. Mm-hmm. And they had a theater teacher from a local high school that was a member and she started this program like why don't we do musical productions you know the old school Oklahoma guys and dolls hello dolly and my sisters were four and five years older than me so they were involved and so I'd go see the shows and I just fell in love with Mm -hmm. the theater uh so I was dying you had to wait till seventh grade till you could do it but I was such a rat for the stage I would just hang around hang around backstage in the makeup room and, you know, just kind of be around it was fascinating to mm-hmm. me. Oh, yeah. I knew I was hooked. I was like, that's it. And so the first time I could do it, I did. And and I kind of stole the show. It was kind of, um, I didn't realize how much of a natural I was at it, at like the comedy side of it. Uh-huh. Um, and I remember vividly just, I knew exactly how long to wait until I said the line and then everybody just fell out, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and they were like, who is this little seventh grade boy? He's a natural comedian. So it was, uh, I was kind of out of a cannon, you know, the, f- my first attempts were like, uh, so surprising. I think that, um, you spend the rest of your artistic life and that, that line starts going down <laughs> and down to where anyone cares or is surprised, you know, yeah. and just go, yeah, that was another pretty good album or whatever. Right. The right. older you get, but those, uh, those first times, I think that, that had me hooked, you know, for good, I think. So then it was always kind of a little bit of theater and a little bit of music. And I was either getting in trouble with my theater people because my band was getting in the way or my band was annoyed because... I have to go to rehearsal all the time. Yeah, a lot of conflict there. Yeah. Not fighting, but just time management was was challenging, you know. Yeah. And to focus, I think I'm kind of, because I split my discipline so much, um, virtually in half, so I'd spent... I, you know, ooching along in each discipline when other musicians my age, let's say, had already gone past because that's all they were kind of focusing on. Sure. And so I don't think I gave myself enough credit for, um, I always just felt like I was behind, you know, even though I was ooching with several things. Sure. Somehow. But now I look back and I'm like, well, you know, I put in a lot of time in both disciplines, so to speak, both areas. Did you go to school for one or the other? I started uh, to go, I went to SMU. They had a theater program that was quite good. Um, A bunch of people came through there, Kathy Bates and... Tina Parker, who's on Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. Uh-huh. Um, she also runs Kitchen Dog Theater, which came out of SMU. So the SMU theater program has a long history, and a lot of actors have come through there here in Dallas uh, that have gone on to this and the other. So a lot of these folks that had gone through SMU, so they had a really great reputation. I went there, but uh, my high school sweetheart I had fallen heavy for went down to A&M. So I ended up transferring down to a uh, Okay. <laughs> Big theater school. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> right. I kind of went running. I kind of was running away a little bit. I think there was so much um, expectation and it was kind of like, like we went to state in one act play, you know, it's just, it's not anywhere near as 
a public thing is the football team, but when that's your discipline and you go to state and you whatever, yeah, you know, and that's part of our culture is making everything a competition. So, which is not good for an artist. However, that's where it was. That's where I was. So I was all there was all this expectation. I'm like, you're gonna all these people asking me to sign their yearbook because I was gonna be famous and all this stuff. Huh? Because I've been in the plays at the school or whatever. So it, sure. All this, so I think I kind of felt too much pressure, and I was like, I kind of want to just go off to college and not be in the basement of the theater building every night while everyone else is going out and having fun. And I was like sure. putting grommets and and curtains and shit. Till. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I think I kind of ran from it in a in a way. And then when I was down at A and M, uh, got in with some guys and we started a band. And I was like, oh, if I start doing this again, I'm going to take it seriously. And then sure enough you know mm. i've been doing it ever since but uh yeah so that was kind of my, my my beginning i guess uh and all this stuff yeah okay um you uh so kitchen dog theater like was that something you started with when it's in its beginning kitchen dog was founded uh my freshman year when i was there by some grad students that had just left so on my way out the door i went and saw the first production at kitchen dog did down above Dave's Art and Pawn Shop down there in Deep Ellum, mm-hmm. in Elm. Um, and I was amazed. It was hardcore right there in your face. Um, there was no air conditioning up there, and it was it fit the play. And so we were all just sitting in this sweltering hot room together, <laughs> and it knocked me out. So um, every time I'd come back, I'd go see shows there. I just thought they were the coolest company around. And there's quite a few. There's um, the Ochre House Theater in Dallas. That's over in Exposition Park. They do all original work. Matthew Posey writes most of the pieces. Uh, the Undermain Theater was around before Kitchen Dog, and they helped us out a lot in those early years. I wasn't a member until 1999, so there was a good 10 years of Kitchen Dog before I ever uh, became a, a part of it. But um, I got to be a part of the company, and it's just, uh, I, I I love the work that we do over there. Um, and it's been a lot of, challenging uh work yeah not your typical you know we're not doing uh neil simon plays and stuff like that it's a little more quentin tarantino style right i mean that's that's the kind of for lack of a better yeah that's that's i i mean that's cool that's surprising only because i feel like we're not in new york or chicago and like i don't think of texas as edgy theater place. yeah so that's cool i mean is, is there's it, even more yeah second thought theater is another one so it's a pretty healthy theater scene going on here locally yes i would say um and it's usually funded mostly by donations and grants and things like that so um audience ticket sales are only a portion of where we make any of the money mm-hmm. so in some ways that help that helps save us because um if it was based on ticket sales alone a lot of us would be in some trouble sometimes because yeah. folks are not seeming to want to go to places collectively and sit in a room together unless it's like Taylor Swift or sure. Hamilton. It's tricky to get like an audience. Big, it's like having a mom and pop shop when the big box stores became a thing. You know, yeah. It's like everything is either streaming at their in their movie theater at their house, and I think production on everything. I just think it's screwing up. When you go walk into a club that doesn't have America's Got Talent tech and lights and sound and shit everywhere. And you're like, you mean he's just going to stand there yeah. and sing and nothing moves? And I just stand here 
and people are bored or something with that. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I was. I wonder about the this generation. If like when you go to when you're doing these shows, is there younger people coming to the shows at all? Is it mostly older people? Yes. Well, it's a mix. I would say our like subscriber base tended to be older, generally speaking. Uh-huh. Um, that's probably across all the theaters: Theater Three, Dallas Theater Center. Um, but we're, there's always young people coming along, uh, both friends of the cast and there's young actors, you know, coming along and then their family and friends, et cetera. But in some ways it is, we're aging into our, you know, when Kitchen Dog started, everybody was 24 years old or whatever, 25, right. right. You know, we built our own sets and did everything ourselves. You know, there didn't, there's no carpenter, there's no. Yeah, actors just the company members. You just learn how to do everything. Yeah, so multitasking for sure. Built your own. I I, I did do a little research today. Mm-hmm. I see that you've won uh, best performance DFW theater critic five times for. You've won that for best performer. Oh, um, gosh, I don't know how many times I counted, so okay. I'm going to say five. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote it down that way. So five. Go that's that. right. I am five-time yeah. winner. And you were nominated uh, uh-huh. four times for best actor for the mm-hmm. Dallas Theater yeah. League and Entertainer of the Year. Oh, so mm-hmm. for LA Times. I mean, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, a little bit of a you know, little love from time to time. Well, so at what point did you start doing more professional work, like TV or like? Mm-hmm. Well, how did you get into voiceovers again? Yeah. Start? Okay. So I uh, let's see. I, I my 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 college band that I had kind of started down at A&M. We moved up to Dallas and played Deep Ellum and played around at Trees and we would play New Year's Eve and it was, we got a pretty good thing going and we'd break up and everything and my sister encouraged me that I should start trying to get an agent and start doing acting to do, you know, TV commercials, make some money while I try sure. to figure out what's next with the music thing, right? So she kind of walked me into this agency, talked them into signing me, kind of acted like my representative. Uh, thanks, Melinda. And uh, so I started off and I started doing little roles and commercials and stuff. And sometimes there would be a voice uh, radio commercial to go along with the commercial. Um, I started booking some things. One of the first things out of the gate I booked, and this is where I thought, this is going to be easy. You know, I thought this is, here we go. (laughs) It was an NBC movie of the week. It was like a three-part miniseries called To Serve and Protect. And it was three generations of Dallas police officers. And it was Richard Crenna. Craig T. Nelson, you know, coach, and uh, James Franco, young, unknown James Franco. was like the young cop. And so Grandpa Cop went vigilante after he retired and went and busts up some drug bust, you know, and I pop in as the real cops. He actually, he shot some drug dealer. Now I have to handcuff Richard Crenna and take him to the police cars outside waiting, which is just like the end of First Blood. Richard Crenna, Colonel Troutman, you know what I'm talking uh-huh, about? Uh-huh. He has to walk Stallone, Rambo, outside to a waiting field of police cars, you know. And so here I am in my first role on television with Richard Crenna. I mean, I'm like freaking out. <clears throat> and he couldn't be nicer. I have to keep handcuffing him, walking him out, putting him in the back of a police car, shut the door till they go cut. And he's like, oh, these goddamn handcuffs. <laughs> I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Mr. Crenna. He's like, not your fault, not your fault. Um but that was hilarious. And so I thought, you know, uh, I had a speaking role. I got to bust in with a gun, you know, and yeah. I had to tell him, you know, I got to do this by the book, you know, a real cheesy line and take Richard Crenna out. And and uh, I never booked a TV role since. And that was 1997. Oh, man. I mean, like, uh. I haven't had a lot of audition opportunities because even if you do a few of those, uh, 
the woman who was the casting director that cast that, and she was like, I really like, you know, she retired. That was like her last job. Oh, so like, yeah. he disappeared. Yeah. So all of that access gone. Um, and I don't know, these other casting folks didn't seem very impressed with any of the accolades for theater or that kind of thing. They're not really looking over there for people for broadcast. Sure, you know? but I just feel like, I, I, I mean, mm-hmm. okay, I tried acting for years, so I understand it, but at the same time, like looking at you and listening to your voice mm-hmm. and it, seeing some of the stuff, I just, it's, it's annoying. Well, it's been amazing. It's been um, humbling uh, because like I said, I kind of started off hot, you know, I came out of the, my first attempts at all of this stuff was like, bam, home run. Right. So I'm like the guy, I'm like the Billy Bean character in Moneyball or something. <laughs> I'm, maybe I should just be on the inside of the, the back of the theater doing something. But um, it all seemed so easy. It came real easy. And people kept yeah. casting me and they kept going, oh, him. And they kept getting picked for the commercials. And then I did, um, I did a commercial for Coke Zero where I was this character, this basketball coach, college basketball. So it was Final Four. March Madness campaign, and they thought they were setting this up to be a regular occasion. You know, or Coach Z, Coach Zero, right? Oh, Coach Z. And I'd pop up in the middle of everyday situations and encourage people with the pep talk about how in 1981 Gonzaga was down by one point. And um, <laughs> so the commercials did. I guess they bought. But we did a whole website. We did cardboard cutouts of me, and so there's a cardboard cutout of Coach Zero. I did personal appearances at the Final Four. It was really surreal. And through that, the same ad campaign, I mean, the same ad agency got the new Domino's account. So that's how the, and uh, my friend Craig Miller, thank you, Craig Miller, um, he sent me a private text one day and just said, hey, do you have a voiceover demo? And I was like, who's this? I was like, Craig Miller. I was like, oh, sorry, I got a new phone. (laughs) And then I, and I was all depressed because I wasn't getting any work and I'm out in Los Angeles and I'm, my band broke up again. So here I am again. And uh, I'm sitting there on the couch all, and I get that. So I had to talk myself into walk, getting up, going over to the computer, just, and I check the voiceover demo and it's not good enough. I'm like, well, I should redo this. And, and I just didn't even have the energy. I just said, screw it. I'll just send him what I have. And I sent it and thought nothing again of it. Mm. And two days later, he's like, how'd you like to be the voice of Domino's? And I was like, wow. I didn't know what he meant when uh-huh. he said that. I thought he, and then my agent calls and goes, well, this is kind of weird. Uh, you're booked on a, a national campaign for Domino's. And I was like, yeah, I know. My friend Craig is the creative director now. So it helped. Now, Craig, if you go backwards to 1996, my first band from college, our first show in Dallas was opening for Craig Miller's band. Huh. And we stuck around after we played. We had a bunch of friends come out because I'm from here and everything, right? Our friends came out. Then they all left and went over to the Green Elephant, which is now the Barley House. And they were like, come over and join us. You know, I was like, guys, guys, we have to stay. We can't just fucking walk out of here. And because the room was almost empty. There was almost nobody there. Mm. It was one of those deals, you know, the headliner just didn't quite. And so we stuck around and we watched their whole set and then shook hands. And then we went over and... And I swear somehow in the deeper recesses of his brain or in the karmic sense of the world that that many years later, he's like, you know who would be good for this? I need to text old Max Hartman. And he, wow. Wow. And I did that job for 12 years. Huh. Oh, yeah. my goodness. That's Get two like... medium toppings. Wait, what is it? Get two medium two topping. Now, see, I've lost it. I can't <laughs> even do it anymore. Get two medium two topping pizzas for five ninety nine each. 
yeah, so I did that for 12 years and it, um, it allowed me to live comfortably and get really nice and complacent about everything. Uh, okay. <laughs> in That'll some happen ways, too. you know, yeah. yeah, you finally get like a good paying job in this industry. Hard to keep them. Um, so I'm, I'm lucky. I mean, that yeah, was a long, gig of a lifetime yeah, in that biz. Absolutely. Um, but I also didn't want to look the gift horse in the mouth. So I haven't exactly taken true advantage of, of that, or there hasn't been a lot of other voiceover work surrounding that. Mm-hmm. And it's weird cause it's kind of an anonymous thing. They don't, you don't send your resume with people like, they don't know that you won any awards or they don't know that you did this, that, or the other job. Huh. They just want to hear a voice that they go, Oh, that sounds nice. Cool. So it's kind of cool that anyone can probably get any job at any time. Um, uh, they weren't worried that I hadn't done a national campaign ever before. Oh yeah, that's true. They were like, ah, oh, we like him. Yeah. Cause they won't give you a major film role usually without a, right. Without they need resume. to know somebody yeah. knows who you are. And so that was a, that's one downside of, I guess, the voice having a gig like that. I, nobody knows. And I, even if I tell them, who are they going to, yeah, you can't, are they going to believe, you know, or, yeah, yeah. Cause it's not well, me on camera. Frustrating, but yeah, but you know, I mean, it's, it's a trade off. It's like, kinda it, nice. it, it's kind of like, it's, it's like a money gig in yes. a way, you know, and I'm not the face of Domino's that right. would make me suicidal. I mean, and not to make humor of that. But oh no. Yeah. You'd be if everywhere I walked in, it was like Domino's guy. Hey, yeah. I would just want to. Jump yeah. off a bridge, man. Yeah, no, I mean, in a Again, way, it's... don't. Sorry for the. Uh, well, using... Don't jump off a bridge, people. Yeah, <laughs> do not endorse that. No. Um. So in all of this, you've got different bands that are coming and going. Mm-hmm. So my, it's funny because I didn't even, I wouldn't even call it introduction to you. I just randomly showed up at a Charlie Crockett show at Granada mm-hmm. and shot the opening bands, including Murr, which was mm-hmm. you and Chadwick Murray mm-hmm. and. Um, so tell me how that, how you met Chad and how that band started. Chad is, oh, it's a funny story. He was, um, 19 years old. I was just out of college. My roommate had a friend that was singing in this band down at Muddy Waters on Greenville and Ross. And he was like, you got to come see my friend. He's this, this white guy, but he sounds black when he sings. And I was I thought that was so dumb, but I thought it was funny. <laughs> I was like, okay, I can't wait to hear your friend sing black, whatever that means, <laughs> you know, soul singer, you know what I mean? Right, so I was like, funny. I get what he means and anything. It was just kind of funny. Yeah. And so then we go and I'm watching and he's leaning over like, what do you think? And I'm like, okay, this guy sounds like, he sounds like he's doing you know, like an Otis, not an Otis Redding. Um, I think who he sounded like mostly. It, it, he was just doing a hardcore soul vibe, you know, this guy, Rhett Frazier, good friend, great dude, great singer. Um, but we're all real young. And anyway, I look over and Chad is over there with his bass, like Gene Simmons over there, just, just <laughs> dominating that side of the stage. And I couldn't yeah. keep my eyes off him. I was like, who is that black kid with the ponytail and everything? He had like the Bono with or without you ponytail slick back. And he had, and he was like, I, I, he, he was just hilarious and, and awesome. I was like, that kid is having the best time of his life. <laughs> he is loving every minute of this song, not just the gig, you know, a lot of blues gigs. The dudes are just kind of, you know, spaced out and just playing. Yeah. So I went up, met him that night. Um, turns out his older brother had gone to school with me in high school. He was just a few years younger, Lake Highlands. Fast forward several years. i he played in a band called the plebeian monarchs. They used to open or we used to play shows together. Um, um, we're bouncing around the neighborhood. He used to work security in the door at like green room and trees and gypsy tea room and everything. And one night I was 
my bass player had quit the band. I'm looking for a new bass player for Murr. We had just started. We were just about to finish recording and put out a record, um, but we hadn't done that yet. And I was talking with Scott Beggs, who was running uh, Trees, and they had just gotten the keys to the Gypsy Tea Room. So he, and this was the most random thing. This is where it's one of those weird magic night things. Scott Beggs, I've known he'd been booking me in clubs for quite a while down there at this point. Um, but we weren't chummy, friendly buddies, you know. I tried to keep a distance somewhat, so I wasn't some annoying band guy. I was going, so, sure, yeah. what's going on, Scott? Hey, man. <laughs> um, but one night, he just goes, hey, you want to come check out the new Gypsy Tea Room space? And I was like, yeah. So he and I just walk down the street. We go look around. Shows me the whole thing. I'm like, what's going on? Why is he showing me this stuff? But it feels good. You know, it feels like, hey, man, I'm kind of, he's like kind of going, you'll be probably playing here someday. And I was like, that's cool. Then we go back to trees. It's closing time. They're sweeping up. We go upstairs to the little loft area and we're just still hanging out talking. I'm kind of going, what is he going to, is he going to ask me something or is this about something or, or we're just hanging out and I'm telling him about, well, Hey man, do you know any bass players that are free? And, and just about right then you hear downstairs Chad's laugh. And if, if you know, Chad's laugh, it is <laughs> the loudest damn thing. So, and tr- Beggs just kind of looks over towards the door down the stairs, you know, and kind of just like, what about old Chad down there, basically? And as soon as I, I just dawns on me, I'm like, oh, my God, of course. Why didn't I think of that? And so Chad walked up and, <laughs> and, um, and we just started rapping. And I said, hey, he was like, when do you need me to know the songs? When's your rehearsal? And I was like. Next Sunday, it was like, sounds good. And he showed up, knew everything. Huh. And it was just great. Um, um, greatest, he became my little brother, really. Um, we've been through a ton of together. He moved out to L.A. together. And, um, you know, he passed just a year and a half ago. Um, and that's its own whole thing. But, uh, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, he, he really was a motor behind uh, keeping the Murr thing going because, um one of our members basically was going to move to Los Angeles and he hadn't know how to bring it up to us. And so it came up and then, so what do we do? And, um, I was like, well, I've been waiting to go out there to do the acting gig to go get some gig money, you know? Sure. But I thought we were sticking around because of this band, you know, so I'm willing to follow the band if you're willing to keep doing it. So I kind of followed the girl, my guitar player, basically once again, um, out to Los Angeles and Chad came along, got an, a new drummer, Brant Cole. I don't know if you know Brant. Um, great dude, great drummer. So we kind of had 2.0 Murr going out there, and then we came back here, and it just, you know, um, and it came up again. Why don't we just do some stuff? So we, we got together again and put a new lineup together and kept making stuff. So, nice. um, But he was kind of a motor behind a lot of that, Yeah, yeah. keeping us going. When you're the uh, – you need somebody else besides yourself. If you're the songwriter – or the main creative, um, at least in my case, I get way too much self-criticism. Self, My inner critic is a real asshole. So uh-huh. um, I'd rather just not participate than embarrass myself as I guess my brain is trying to huh. protect me from doing something stupid. Or what, uh, you know. So he was kind of your balance with that. He was always encouraging and like, hey, let's get together. Yeah, that new song sounded good. Why don't we, let's keep working on that. Let's do this. You know, let's book right. a date. Let's just book a date. Yeah. And that's how the Bastards got started. They were hemming and hawing and talking about doing that forever. Um, and we can talk about that, but um, but they just booked a date. Yeah. 
and then they had to get their shit yeah. together. Yeah. I used to do that. I would have bands and I was in LA and I would be super anal and people would quit or they wouldn't show up to rehearsal and I would just book shows. And then if like I would play a show with no drummer or a show uh-huh. with a bongo player, like I didn't care. I was like, cause if we don't book the shows, we're just going to never play. Right. You know? So yeah, that's a, that's a, um, and nowadays it's it's challenging because shows are not the, this the attendance numbers are just not yeah you've got to really have some kind of buzz going yeah found, and I don't know how to do that like organically and it starts well and it starts within the phone you know it's yeah. like you need some girls to bounce around and to your song or something. I don't know I mean, yeah these videos that are just about nothing it's just brand management I was I ran into a Chad Stockslager at breakfast just a little bit ago. And uh, he's doing his one-man ver- his variety show, you know, the happy, good time variety show. And so we're all just kind of discussing all of that and how it's hard to get folks out or to get the word out or how much are you bugging people too much? Do you, how mm-hmm. can you tell? Sure. You don't know who's seeing it or not and blah, blah, blah. And then this guy, as he's walking out the door after we're like, yeah, it's kind of hard. He walks out the door and the guy was like, oh, hey, I see your post about your show all the time. Looks like it's going great. And it occurred to me, I'm like, it's about... The posting about the show is yeah. no longer. That's what the. That's what it is now. It's you know, not even the show. So I, f- I feel like I have so many people that are like, your podcast. I'm so happy you're doing it. That's so awesome. And I'm looking at the numbers. I'm like, the amount of people that are talking about how great it is do not listen. Which right. I guess I don't get whatever. I guess that's fine. It's like they still it's are giving me of... some credit for something. I'm like, well, you don't have to listen, but that's the whole point. Like I, I don't need the credit that we're doing this. I, right. We're doing something to listen to it, you know? No, it's, it's, it's about, it's, it's about, it's uh, our own, instead of having shared experiences, you know, it's about how can I curate this phone to give me and, and my television set only what I want to yeah. see or hear about and only what I, you know, care about. Yeah. And the experience of the concert isn't really like, let's all go to the concert. It's, I want to go Instagram myself while I'm at a concert. Oh, yeah. More than it is about the concert. I've I've been to these things that are kind of like, you know, like not award shows, but like competitions. And like somebody had like, like she was in the final round. And like literally there's an audience and a person on stage with a mic. And she's like with her phone. Like she's, she's not talking to the audience to the person. It's all about her audience on the phone. And I was just like. <laughs> okay i mean like why it's did you even in it we could live stream the whole thing you don't it's even just come like an, an, an infinite an infinite butthole that with with a head going up inside yeah. an infinitely <laughs> right. infinite man you know with like a yeah there's a cartoon i think with a man with his head up his own ass and um it's hysterically funny i had an idea and i'm still gonna try to pull it off for a short film uh trying to figure out analog physical world Pre phones, pre smartphones, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even pre internet. I don't know. That's kind of going back, but trying to reimagine our behavior like with commenting. Let's just say a comment section on a Facebook page back when people were very political and posting. People have kind of all learned. Yeah. To just don't even bother. Right. But remember that? And it was just, yeah, pylons upon pylons, friends on other people's pages, other people commenting on other, you know, and I tried to imagine what if it was a college campus in the nineties and they have those, those little kiosks with all the flyers for all the different clubs and groups and stuff, you know, right, right. and you could peel off a phone number for this or write your name, sign up for the thing. Or, uh-huh. And if it was comment section, like Facebook was a kiosk 
and everybody on campus was just climbing over each other like ants to write on hand write. Uh-uh, Hillary Clinton has <laughs> killed more people than you. Right. And everyone had to go, oh, okay, well, then I'll comment. Oh, my god! And just how insane we would look, all of us feverishly climbing over each other to write a comment on a comment. Right. When actually everybody's on their toilet alone firing off all this shit oh, yeah. through their Facebook or whatever. Yeah, I had to I had to delete Twitter at one point. I was just yeah, like, I can't. It's, it's, it's just too It's much. terrible takes from the worst people, and it's the worst take on the worst of us and it's just amplifying all the terrible aspects and we're just it's this final this giant like zit of narcissism and and donald trump is like the head and <laughs> and the pus is us you know we're all like inside this giant boil of just uh, me look at me and it's gotten so idiocracied you know i just don't even know where that leaves old-timey vaudevillians you know like yeah. Uh, you know, vaudeville ended at the Great Depression. Right. Like it was ad as a whole form. Like just nobody had a nickel to go see a guy, you know, tap dance to a Victrola or whatever. Um, so that kind of form of entertainment just disappeared. You know, you saved up to go to the big, to the movies, you know, uh-huh. or whatever. Um, and I feel like the COVID has done a number that we're still not figuring out the dust is settled. You know what I mean? I think right. the big tent Taylor Swift sells out, you know, people are paying, I mean, they're spending their vacation money to take their kid to see Taylor Swift. Oh yeah. But the other thing that's happened and it's like, I'm not going to get into the whole Ticketmaster thing, but right. every show I've gone to has been sold out. And it like, if you go to Ticketmaster, it's sold out. But when you go to the show, it's not sold out at all because they're all at secondhand. Right. And like there's empty space, which is yeah. okay too sometimes, but it just like, it's, sold out to me i mean i'm sure taylor swift was sold out but like most shows i just like it's it's a funny thing to me now well it's yeah ticketing that's its own whole thing Uh, but we even i mean i'm doing a lounge act where i sing uh, sinatra i'd go under max fontaine yeah was that this is a good transition i was about to get yeah yeah old max fontaine so i was in la that's what when i won like best entertainer in the la downtown news which is like (laughs) it's like one of those rags that not rag i don't mean to be a dick about it it's not the equivalent of the dallas observer it's more the equivalent of the uh, the white rock weekly or the, oh yeah i mean it was somewhere in between you know it's it was still nice. serving downtown it's still nice to be recognized well and i'm in los angeles and by golly they're saying i'm the best thing going down there for uh, for entertainment uh i got to meet garrett morris at the awards ceremony from <laughs> yeah yeah because he had opened a comedy club down there and i was like i can't believe i'm a co-winner with SNL original Garrett Morris. Yeah. I get to sing to the mayor and everything. Um, but yeah, so I just started doing this, uh, you know, Ricky Derrick here in Dallas is, uh, does a, does a funny and very good Sinatra type, you know, act crooner, frontman comedian. And he did a variety show and he had cast me in that one time as Max Von Tain. And so I would do all the real cheesy loungy. I'd do Neil Diamond and Elvis and Tom Jones particularly. So, um, oh, you go to YouTube. What's new, pussycat? And all that. And I'd wear leather pants and put socks in it and everything. <laughs> and have my friends throw panties at the stage. And everything. it was ridiculous. So it was the lounge lizard, you know, cheese yeah, yeah. ball, you know, guy. And then I was in Los Angeles and I was trying to find work uh, in between. Job. Couldn't find a waiter gig that was any good, you know. And my roommate friend, Parissa, suggested, why don't you just do Max Fontaine, but just do it yourself. Just be 
just do all the Sinatra stuff too. And I was like, that's, so we started this little pub in Pasadena, old town pub. Mm. And, oh, yeah, um, been there. yeah, right. That back in the hidden away behind the, they built like a big container store mall all around it, but the, <laughs> they left it back in there. Right. You have to go through this alleyway to get there. So it was cool. It's kind of a speakeasy vibe, no air conditioning, just beer and wine. And so I would just bring like my whiskey in there and smoke cigarettes while I performed. I mean, I don't, I don't know if that helped with the voice or not, <laughs> but, um, so it started from there and then a, a downtown restaurant, um, guy came in and he so i started singing at cicada down in oh I, downtown los angeles god, i love cicada they yeah, had yeah. that press lobster sausage mm-hmm. oh my god i can't believe mm. yes yes like, that's i haven't been i was there once 30 years ago anyway yeah it's great a great italian restaurant and they film it all the time it's always in movies it was in mr and mrs smith and it was in they used it three times in once upon a time in hollywood huh. for three different locations it used to be in uh west hollywood i think and then oh it did to, yeah that's where oh. i went to it yeah Okay, well, this one's in the Oviat building. It's a 1929 building in downtown yeah. L.A., 6th yeah, yeah. and Olive. And um, it's got this crazy penthouse on the top. So I do weddings and big events, and um, I did... You have I, a band, or you just do this all with, like, record? Yeah, band? I did it with tracks. Yeah, um, okay. Every once in a while, I'd have a band. If, the, if the, the person interested was like, we'd really love you to have a band, do you do that? And I'd go, you bet. And then mm-hmm. I'd hire up some guys. Scramble and around. Scramble around. Um, but most of the time, I just did it with those... The thing with those tracks that were, they had to make them authentically. You couldn't really synthesize it. You could, but it sounded real shitty. So yeah. most of those karaoke tracks tended to be pretty well produced. So right. it sounded pretty okay, I think. And you're still doing that here? Yeah, still do that about once a month at the foundation room at House of Blues. Cool. Um, and uh, it's hard to do... Uh, I would think to get music rights to put any of that stuff out on record, it would be yeah. expensive quick. Yeah, I, to try I to, would think so. <laughs> to try to put Fly Me to the Moon or something, you know, right. out there. Um, but I don't seem to feel passionate enough about it to really want to totally go down that road, you know? Sure. But I think that's maybe where my, my moneymaker is. Is that the only I'm music honest. you're doing right now? No, I'm writing. I'm, I'm still writing my masterpiece. Ah. Nice. No, um, I've been working on really trying to expand my palette, as it were, musically and vocally. Um, I don't want to keep writing the same vibe and mode and write the same mm-hmm. intervals. And um, so when COVID kind of hit, I locked down. Um, I picked up my, you know, models of guitar can do different things. Obviously, oh, yeah. they sound different, but they make you play different and they make you think of different things. To me, at least. And I'd been playing this hollow body guild for a, a long stretch and writing on it. And it just things started to all keep saming into this. So I got my old strat back out and um, simplified my pedal board and everything. and just kind of went back to basics, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want to write some just dumb bar chord songs that are easy to play. I don't have to look at my damn neck. I don't right. have to. <laughs> right. So I do all these triplet run thingies that are uh, whatever. That are in fuck. I have to stare at my damn guitar neck because I, I I just don't. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, I wanted to simplify and and just do some rock tunes and and my vision of when we get out of this thing, people are gonna want to pack the clubs uh-huh. and they're gonna want to hear some fun music. Man, we're gonna want to rock and go. Yeah, we did it. Yeah. And the not is what has happened. But uh, yes and no. I mean, but but yeah. I mean. <sighs> But it started me down a road of at least yeah, yeah. writing some different type of stuff. So I've been I've been kind of 
still collecting ideas. I've got quite a few um, ready to go just about. Um, uh, the lyric process is usually the last thing I tend to do. Uh-huh. And that's usually the, I resist that the most, even though it's not the hardest part right. to me necessarily. But I seem to resist the sitting down to do it. It feels like I have to do homework or something, you know, uh-huh. or the um, resistance which I don't know what people call it all different types of thing. My demons, or they call it the devil. They call it your own self sabotage shit, you know, gets uh-huh. in the way. Oh, so yeah. I'm particular. I don't know if I'm more challenged than others, but it can take me a very long time to get finished with things. When you're like writing your music, is it just coming to you? Are you kind of like figuring things out? Like, like with theory, I'll typically start with the, a couple of chord changes, you know, it usually starts with the guitar or the piano and it's, it's a vibe. It's a, it's a feeling that I get about those intervals and those chords. And it's kind of like, it feels familiar in some way and you go, ha, okay. Huh? Where else is this going? And you find it's cousin kind of like it's other part over here. That's like, Ooh, you guys vibe together. And then you're just kind of along for the, so sometimes I use a little voice memo, you know, on the phone. So I'll screw around for a few minutes, usually not that long. Once I've kind of stumbled across something, I'll repeat it around a little bit. You know, you just kind of do this for a while and get up and go get some coffee and come back and do that for a while. And then something else I'll add on to that. Um, and then I'll sit and just kind of press record and play it. And usually an arrangement will kind of just stumble out that mm. seems reasonable um, usually a little long because you're still kind of working on let's try that again so you go back to the beginning-ish and, and then I have that recording to kind of listen to, think about I'll keep playing around with it and then the sitting down for and I'll vocalize too while I'm doing it um, just mumble anything that, sometimes things come across phrases, words so I'll go, huh, what am I, what's that about so I'll try to kind of fill in the blanks use those as little guideposts maybe for lyrics. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of times you repeat yourself because you're always kind of <laughs> battling the same demons as it were, you know? Yeah. Well, you and know, also it's like your, your experience in life is like putting those notes kind of in your body, I think a little mm-hmm. bit. So, I mean, it makes sense that you have to like um, work to get out of the same things you've been doing over and over. Yeah. That's, that's, um, so I think I have done that. I mean, I definitely have new, um, it's kind of like I would, I try to, whenever I was getting impatient, I was like, Hey man, it's like a painter going through a new phase, you know, mm-hmm. or this new period. I'm not trying to equate myself to Picasso or anything like that. I just mean, you know, um, sometimes it takes a while digging in the dirt to kind of oh yeah find the new thing that's making you Are feel. you thinking you're going to put a band with this or just record it or you don't, you don't know? I'm, um, I'm sure I will do all of the above. Cool. I do want to play live. Um, and I do want to record in what order I do that. I don't know. Sure. It's been challenging to do this alone because I normally had the band kind of always going Yeah, and it had all the other material, but then it was easy to bring on a new song or so Mm -hmm. at a time and the band could kind of help you flesh it out real quick because they go, it's this kind of thing. And then they go, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then they have ideas that I'm like, Ooh, that's great. You know? It would have taken me three weeks to get to that, you know, right. fiddling around maybe. So I miss that. Um, uh, but these days, guys are just not 
hanging out all the time, ready and available to be at band practice all the time, like yeah, it was. When I we feel were all like just... there's more hired gun situations or just people mm-hmm. that are, you have like chose to. Yeah, like, just send me know. the recordings and I'll learn the part and I'll see you at that one yeah. rehearsal we do, you know? Yeah. And I get that. And so that's time efficient, but that means I have to get all that done before, you know? Yeah. I mean, and for me, I mean, I used to do stuff like that. And you just, the one thing you can't do is you can't have someone learn the backups that quickly. I feel like right. they could do the, they can learn a bass part, but like the, you're not, you're going to have to work on the vocals, yeah. the harmonies and stuff. Which is know? partly why we were lazy enough to not really do a whole lot of harmonizing, which made it funnier, all the funnier that Chad, that nobody knew he could sing really. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause He'd... all the only backups and the mer music was just like, ah you know stuff like that over the backing so nobody really knew he could sing uh i knew because he would get lit and at a party or something and bust out some otis redding and everybody would go (laughs) god damn right but um um that's interesting because i you know i obviously i don't know him well and i like the first time i saw him with you and then he came to artco with bastards and i saw Mm -hmm. that show and you know and I mean, I, we interacted, but then that was, I didn't see a lot of his earlier career. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why I'm doing this. I'm like, you know, there's yeah. all these, you know, not just the people here, but the people that we, you know, that got us here too. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what do we got? What's besides the music project? What do you got lined up? What's coming okay, up? Okay. I've got a, um, I helped produce a, uh, low budget horror film. Oh, cool. A feature film called, we're changing the name. So I guess I'll tell you the new name is called the finale hmm. and it's, uh, think uh it's kind of like scream meets glee like, <laughs> okay okay yeah like scream set at musical theater camp that's kind oh of my God, there's so many people that can relate to yeah. that so the uh, kids are all you know going through the drama of being in the theater see you know and rehearsals and who's got the part and who has the better voice and all that uh-huh. shit and meanwhile there's somebody who's taking off picking off people one by one wow. uh, nice. the faculty and fellow students so and you're trying to figure out why are they murdering these people and who is it, who's doing it, because um, you know it's somebody in the film, right? Right. Uh, my, my good friend Michael Federico, fellow Kitchen Dogger uh, theater member, same with Christy Vela. She and he have a podcast called Terror and Tacos. Mm, okay. They talk about horror movies and tacos. Okay. And um, so they've seen every damn horror movie that's been made. And they said, we should just make our own. Because they watch a lot of them. They're bad, you know. Yeah. They're like, good Lord, we could write something this good, you know. Sure. So they did. And I caught wind of it. Um, and I'm sitting on some Domino's pizza money. And I was like, <laughs> I want to be involved. I don't, I, I want to be involved with this. Um, and so my involvement was to just executive produce. And so I just invested in, um, and hired some amazing people. Um, Desiree Fultz. Uh, who was our champion production manager slash first assistant director, you know, uh, slash everything. She mm. kind of taught us how to organize and hire people. So, um, yeah, we shot it uh, 2019 and 2020. We wrapped on March 1st, uh-huh. 2020, and we were looking forward to making this thing, uh, uh, making this movie happen, and we got locked down two weeks later. So that delayed the process quite a bit, but, Currently, we're due to come out hopefully this summer. Okay. Um, Octane Multimedia is a um, distribution company that has taken us on, and oh, so nice. we've been wouldn't believe how many how many documents and files you have to upload to a company to to put a film because now they have to change it to foreign markets. So we have to even the the titles you have to have those blanks. So it'll say it'll director instead of directed oh, by sure. 
And so they have to redo all of that stuff. It's very strange. Anyway, that'll be coming out hopefully this summer. Um, I'm doing sound design for a show at Kitchen Dog Theater called The Last Truck Stop that Mm. comes out here in June. Um, That'll run for about three weeks. It's kind of a uh, post-apocalyptic. There are no more cars and you're forced to go move into big city urban areas. So no more delivery trucks but the only thing that does go around there are these amazon trucks that are Mm self-driven and so they come in and these automated pumps fill them up and then they so it's kind of like road warrior or something um so that'll be coming up here in june what else do i have going on there's a couple of films that are out there still um never going back which is a funny stoner comedy if you're into that kind of thing um i got to do a funny scene with um kyle mooney um that was a blast. So between Garrett Morris and Kyle Mooney, I'm, I'm SNL adjacent. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. And another flick um, I did called Little Woods is out there um, with Lily James and Tessa Thompson. Do you know who they are? Uh-huh. Well, she Tessa's on Westworld and, and all this. Okay, Thor. I'm, sure, I'm sure I recognize her. I just and Lily just me. played Pamela Anderson. Oh, God, she was great. Yeah, I love right. that series. And she was in all kinds of things before that. But I didn't know who they were when we shot. I uh-huh. was just down in Austin doing a low-budget movie, and I didn't know their names. And so I just, we shot all night. And then I went back to the hotel and looked them up on IMDb. And was like, holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, wow. So I'm glad I didn't know who they were. I would have been a moron, I'm sure. <laughs> I doubt it. Hey, thanks for coming over here today, Max. I'm thanks sure for having me. There's like a lot of stuff. We're gonna have you back. Uh, You're gonna have to edit out a lot uh, of my rambling. Oh, you know, mine too. <laughs> but this this is the first podcast in a minute where I didn't go. Uh, okay, I totally forgot what I was saying, and I had to stop for five minutes. Uh, yeah. I did that. <laughs> right. Thanks for coming. I'd like to thank Max Hartman for being my guest today. Theme song "Unstoppable" by Celine Nerala. You can listen to the Dallas Famous Podcast every week on Deep LM Radio, Sundays and Tuesdays at 1 p.m., and then again on all the podcast places. Thanks again for tuning in.